um, series talking about victory. Um, it's an area, it seems to me, that is underemphasized and misunderstood often. So you may remember, for those of you that were here a couple weeks ago when we started it, we took a look at the concept of victory, and uh, the word, the reason, uh, the word is... Uh, the verb is used 24 times in the New Testament, 17 of them in Revelation. So we're actually looking at the seven letters in Revelation to the seven churches because that's where we learn what victory all, is all about, what's really behind it. So you may remember I said the noun in the first, serv- the first service a couple weeks ago is the, verb, uh, the word nikkei, and the verb is nikao. Nikkei, and I said, what does that remind you of? And somebody yelled out, tennis shoes. Perfect. In the Hellenistic era, the Greek goddess Nike, nikkei, uh, rose to the surface. Victory in the ancient world was very superstitious, and I'm using that technically, that word technically. In other words, it was all dependent on the gods. And here's the way it worked. If our gods are more powerful than your gods, then we will win, whether it's in a military victory, whether it's in a lawsuit. Well, no matter where it is, we're going to win because our gods are more powerful than your gods. By the way, in many parts of the world, that belief is still there. If you travel with me to India or Nepal, for example, uh, Hinduism has 330 million gods, and so there's no way you can worship them all. So you have your own local tribal deities which protect you from the other gods which may not like you. And so when you go, you have little temples to the various deities, the temple, the local tribal deities that they worship, keep us safe, that sort of thing. And so the, the Bible, as it begins to address the one true living God which we worship, and it begins to address this whole concept of victory. It begins to reveal that the world's perspective is really not right. It's wrong. So we work our way through it, and we begin to make sense of it. And the reason why we're looking at Revelation is 17 of the 24 verbs occur in Revelation. So Revelation is the one book that develops this concept of victory more than any other. makes sense, being the last book, to give us a sense of hope of where we live and what's coming. But before we get there... I want to set the stage for this letter. This letter we're going to look at today is a letter to Smyrna. It's, the one, it's, a, it's a letter that has no criticism in it. So he, he didn't find any fault with the church in Smyrna. And so we're going to have to look at, well, then why did he write it? Chapter 2 of Revelation. You know, many years ago, many, many, many years ago, before most of us were born, a man Socrates lived. Some of you are still pretty old, I think. 5th century B.C. Greek philosopher. And he made a statement that uh, we actually don't have his writings, uh, that it was reported to us. He made a statement which has made it down into our world today. It's very profound. An unexamined life is not worth living. An unexamined life is not worth living. I'm reading a book given to me by Don Wolf, fantastic book, by Oz Guinness, one of my heroes. I, I try to read as much as I can of his stuff. He's so good. It's called Fool's Talk. Fool's Talk. Recovering the Art of Christian Persuasion. This is a book about how do we engage our neighbors in the West, post-Christian West, which is us, in Christian ways. How do we bring up the gospel? How do we bring up the truths of Scripture in a way that will engage them? So it's a very, very good book. And along the way, he has a chapter called The Anatomy of Unbelief, where he looks at the various uh, ways that people um, avoid 
dealing with the truth. And there's a section in here, it's very relevant to what we're going to talk about in the letter to Smyrna. So he's quoting, uh, Os Guinness is quoting Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal is a 17th century French philosopher and mathematician, a believer, Catholic. Um, and so he did a lot of writing to help us really grasp and did a fantastic job, grasp concepts that we actually still use today. So he's quoting Pascal right now. Think about how current this is. Now he's going to use the word man and mankind because that was a the language they used back then, but he's talking about all of us. I have often said, Pascal wrote, that the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his own room. Now think about that with me just for a moment. The sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his own room. Why? Because we all have to surround ourselves with diversion to take our minds off ultimate reality, including the fact that we will die. We all have to surround ourselves with diversions to take our minds off ultimate reality, including the fact that we will die, our own mortality. Pascal put it this way, if man were happy, the less he were diverted, the happier he would be. So if we were happy, the less we were diverted, the happier we would be. Now think about our culture right here in Summit County. What is it we sell? Entertainment. Right? Diversion. That's what he's describing us. He's describing us. But that is not how we are. Being unable to cure death, wretchedness, and misery... Men have decided in order to be happy not to think about these things. So the path to happiness, according to the world, is to avoid thinking about the realities in which we live. You see, and he goes on and talks about his time period, which is true of our time period as well. The opportunity for a full life of diversion was the privilege of the rich and powerful. Who comes to our county? Those who can afford it. It's not a criticism of the rich. It's just the reality that we live in. If you go with me to Nepal or to uh, Mozambique or to uh, uh, India or any of those places, you'll see that the poor, they don't even have this opportunity. They don't have the luxury available to them to create the kind of diversions that we can create today. Men cannot be too much occupied and distracted. Okay, Men cannot be too much occupied and distracted. And that is why when we have been given so many things to do, if they have some time off, they are advised to spend it on diversion, sport, something to keep themselves fully occupied. It's what modern-day philosophers are beginning to call weapons of mass distraction. What distracts you? Here's mine. I love this thing. Just playing a game last night with my sister-in-law and her family and my wife, and it was a word game, and anytime they said it the way I didn't agree with, okay, Google, tell me what this means, and I was able to prove them wrong. <laughs> we don't need hecklers from the audience. <laughs> she says, but you lost. <laughs> 
tough getting beat by your wife. We need the marriage seminar. I think several of you know when the election happened, I was surprised, and I began reading this, the headlines, three times a day, seven days a week. I love it. I think I'm addicted. I'm like a kid in a candy store. So I have my Google News set up. It feeds me everything from Huffington Post at one end to Fox News on the other. And I read it three times a day to find out what's going on. And guess what? It didn't take me long to realize that everybody has an agenda. Everybody. There are those that as soon as Trump does something stupid and he occasionally does that, they highlight it. And then there are those that when the Democrats do something stupid and they occasionally do that, they highlight that. And then there are those that when the Republicans who disagree with Trump do something stupid, they highlight that. And they're very consistent. It's absolutely amazing to me how consistent they are. And so I've, I've read it enough and, and I've been reading these uh, headlines enough to see patterns emerging. Who likes whom? It's pretty clear now who it is. But I'm also seeing something new, especially in the last month. It's really kind of fun to me. You know, it's a popular thing now to fact-check the president. All the big, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the CNN, they fact-check the president. And uh, I don't know whether to trust them or not. Quite honestly, I don't trust any of them. I don't care what in the spectrum they're on. I don't trust them. But now I see these lower news outlets like the Colorado Springs Gazette and other people fact-checking the big boys. So now I see articles, CNN said this, they just misled you on these five points. And it's like, wow, what a world we live in. You know, I'm old enough that I'm no longer worried about which president's in office. I've been through enough of them now that it's, I have enough theology and confidence in God that it's going to be okay. And so I'm having a blast reading this three times a day. Some people said I, they would have a heart attack if they did that. That's not me. I'm actually enjoying it and laughing about it. But this is my distraction. One of them. (laughs) What's your distraction? You all have one, don't you? What is it? Weapons of mass distraction. Well, Guinness goes on today. He says, We live today in the grand age of diversion, and the reasons why are obvious. With our economic prosperity, our high-tech devices... And cornucopia of entertainment pressing for our attention, we can surround ourselves with diversion from cradle to grave. Doesn't matter how old you are. We do not focus our attention on anything for long. We do not ask what the good life is and what it requires. Why? Because we don't focus on anything for very long at all. I, I admit to you, I have ADHD. I know it surprises some of you. I actually have it pretty strong. Uh, But I've come to the conclusion that almost everybody in our culture has some level of it because we can't focus on anything for very long at all. We're so distracted by what goes on around us. Happiness is a small circle, and it is no surprise that the last thing on most people's minds at any moment is the question of the meaning of life the coming of death, and the priorities that are needed to choose wisely. What Socrates called the unexamined life that is not worth living now seems to be the life more people have slipped into never before. This is our world, isn't it? This is our world. Some of you were here two years ago when I stood up here and I told you that I was diagnosed with bladder cancer. God chose that path in life, and that's my path. 
And so I have bladder cancer. And so from the time that I found out I had bladder cancer till the time when they did the surgery and the biopsy to find out how severe it was, was about a month. I had a month in there. I had an examined life. It's amazing, that C word, how that C word makes you pause and take stock of what's important to you. Spent many nights wide awake. Uh, tearful nights, praying to the Lord. But I discovered some things which I already knew to be true. They just were reinforced again. Number one is my faith is real. Number two is I actually love the Lord and trust Him. And number three, I'm ready to die. I hope not. But I'm ready. If the time comes. It's amazing how that C word caused me to stop and reflect for a period of time about what's important. What are, the, what are the diversions, distractions, what are they in your life? I've sat with some of you when you've gotten that same diagnosis. Some of them are no longer with us, they're now with the Lord. I've sat with them when they were, received the notice that your life is now short. And one of the questions I've asked is, uh, how, how real is your faith? Now that you've been given the death sentence, by the way, you all have the death sentence. My first wife, Judy, who uh, died of a terminal illness way back in the 70s, uh, early 80s, I guess. Uh, back then, the doctors could tell you what to do, and you did it. And, um, and so the doctor came in one time just before she died and said, I want you to, I want you to talk to the psychiatrist, one of the psychiatrists here at the hospital. She goes, I want to talk to the psychiatrist. And he said, no, 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 you're going to talk to the psychiatrist. I told her, just talk to him. What do you got to lose? So this is at the University Hospital, CU Med Center. So I never will forget it. Uh, the stereotypical, what I thought of at the time, stereotypical psychiatrist walks in, has the goatee, sits down, <laughs> and just looks at her very reflectively and says, Judy, how do you feel about dying? I feel fine about dying. How do you feel about dying? <laughs> and he said, well, well, we're not here to talk about me. And she goes, well, who made those rules? I didn't remember reading that. She goes, here's the way it works. You ask me a question, I ask you a question. So how do you feel about dying? And she says, he says, uh, well, uh, I hadn't thought about it. And he, she says, well, don't you think you should? You're going to die, you know. <laughs> I had the privilege of sitting in. I wasn't allowed to talk and just watch and laugh my head off. I've, been the, I've had the privilege of being married to two wonderful godly women, feisty as can be, with a sense of humor. Here's another one right here. And I see, I laughed my head off. So at the end, he said, would you come talk to my psychiatric students? He was the chair of the psychiatric department. So for those of you that remember the old CU Med Center at 9th in Colorado, they had the bridge going across the road. So he wheels her across in a wheelchair into the auditorium. There's about 70 to 100 psychiatric students. And he sits down and has the exact same conversation, word for word. Just like that. It's, I got to sit there and watch that too. You're all going to die. And I've sat with some of you and said, when you've been given that death notice, how's your faith? How is it? It's really rough. It's really rough to stop and examine our lives and what's actually going on. We find distraction all the time, don't we? Because we want to avoid pain. I've sat with some of you in your marriages and said, 
Are you ready to uh, tackle this problem? You see, what typically happens in a pastor's spot is that the pain begins to grow, and at some point it grows to the point that it's unmanageable, and then you're sitting in my office. But some of you are a little stubborn, and the pain's not quite high enough. So I've sat with more than one couple where I said, are you willing to get help? Nope, can't afford it. Okay, have a good life. It's your life, not mine. Three or four months later, have a conversation with them. How are things? They're worse. So you're ready to deal with it? No. Okay. And there comes a point in time where the pain gets so great, you can no longer hide from it. And then you say, I have two options. Divorce or solve the problem. Then you're ready to deal with it. Sat with more than one couple that has gone through that trajectory. Folks, don't wait. The sooner you deal with it, the cheaper it is, the easier it is, and the more fun it is. The longer you wait and distract yourself, the harder it is. So what are the things that distract you from reality? What are they? I I don't know you. I just know me. Now I'm going to read to you this letter to the church at Smyrna. Last week, we looked at the first letter in Ephesians, uh, Revelation 2 to the church in Ephesus. And this is where he accuses them. He brings the charge before them. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. And last week, we talked as a church about can we as a church continue to make the commitment to keep the main things the main things. And the main thing is love. A new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, everyone will know that you, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have the right doctrine. Oh, wait, that wasn't it. No, it's if you have love for one another. In other words, we're allowed to make mistakes in our doctrine. But this is one place we can't make a mistake. Talked about the tree of life because that's to the one who is victorious. I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life. And we look, we did a brief survey of the tree of life through Proverbs. And the tree of life is symbolic for relationship, both with God and with each other. This is where we find wisdom, redemption, security, hope. We find it right here with God and with each other. You can't have one or the other. Don't be deceived. I find God up in the mountains. First John says, if you say you love God and you hate your brother or sister, you're a liar. Don't be deceived. If your love is authentic, you will find it here. Jesus reduced the law, 613 commands, down to two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul reduced it to one. Love your neighbor as yourself. He never quotes the first one. That's how important it was. If your love is authentic, you'll find this expression right here. And this is the beginning of the tree of life. We talked last week about how the tree of life, he put that angel to guard us against it. What was the cost of removing that barrier? The death of Jesus. That's what communion is about. So this time we have the church in Smyrna. I'm going to read you the letter. It's in chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 8. 
These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you your life as a victor's crown." Whoever has ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, the one who is victorious, uh, let them hear what the Spirit says. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. There's no, there's no charge that he brings before them. There's no criticism here. This is a letter of a church that has become highly distracted. And Jesus is doing with them what I'm attempting to do with you is to cut through those distractions and say, let's get to the truth and the reality of what's going on in your world. It's what I do all week long when I'm having coffee with you, is to cut through those distractions. That's what Jesus is doing right here. He doesn't have anything against this church. He's preparing them. He's warning them by not letting the distractions divert them off course. Smyrna is very interesting. It's about 35 miles north of uh, Ephesus. It's on the western coast of uh, Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. On the Aegean Sea, had a fantastic port, deep-water port. In fact, this port was better than the one at Ephesus because it was, uh, the one at Ephesus was already beginning to silt up by this time in history, and the one in Smyrna wasn't. So it was a very prosperous, um, very uh, economically strong uh, city, it was uh, one of the two cities, the other being three, actually. Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum were the three largest cities. Those were the cities that were given the responsibility to guard the imperial cult in Asia Minor. So you had the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus. Here in Smyrna, it's a large city. You have a synagogue, a very large synagogue with a bunch of Jewish people. That's what synagogues are in the ancient world. Lots of Jewish community, very, very large Jewish community in this part of the world. And they were very successful as a Jewish community. You see, the Jewish communities in the, in the Roman Empire, they had applied for and received exemption under the Roman government. Their religion was registered. You had, to relig- you had to register your religion in order to worship in that religion, and you had to register your gods. That's why the early Christians, when they said Jesus is God, that's why they called them atheists. Atheists were first applied to Christians because Jesus was not registered with the Roman Empire as a god. And so you're worshiping, in fact, at Mars Hill in Athens, they said, you're worshiping a strange God. We haven't heard about this God. Who on earth are you talking about? You weren't allowed to do that. So the, the Jewish people had registered as a religion, and their God, uh, Yahweh, was, was accepted. Because of their religious nature, the Romans gave them exemption, so they did not have to participate in the uh, imperial cult festivities that occurred regularly. Because that was considered blasphemous to them, so they received exemption from that. Okay, so now, when you're in Smyrna, here's what happens. And, and, and many of you will re- relate to this. Their businesses were all built on, built on relationships, weren't they? Just like it is today. You have a bad reputation, you're in trouble. Is that right? I know many of you, I know you run businesses. By the way, it's true as a church. It's true with us as well. If we have bad, if we have a loss of integrity, we have a bad reputation, our church is hurt. On Wednesday, I was flying back from Dallas. I was down there speaking at Dallas Seminary. And uh, so I'm on the airplane uh, at Airbus 321. I know my planes. I have 
premier status with American. I always get the exit row on Airbus 321 because I got eight feet in front of me. I can stretch out before the next seat because there's a big door right here. So I sit down like I always do, and the flight attendant's there guiding people. So I sit down, I buckle my seatbelt, and I lay back, and I know from lots and lots of years of practice, I have five seconds and I'm gone. I'm out cold, sleep. And I sleep the whole flight, okay? I lay back. One, two, three, four. I like your church. And the flight attendant is standing right there, and I say, excuse me? She said, you're Jim Howard, right? Dillon Community Church? My husband and I, we like your church. We're in Dallas. (laughs) I said, you've obviously been to my church. She goes, yeah, we live in Breckenridge. And uh, we started coming to your church about six weeks ago. And we spent the whole flight talking about the church. It was so encouraging because she said to me, I hear about your church everywhere I go. And it's positive. That's what we want to hear, isn't it, as a church? That the county thinks well of us. Because relationships are important in everything that we do. It's no different here in Smyrna. It's no different. So the Jews... Uh, they had worked their way in into the guild and all the different business enterprises. And they were, because they were legally exempted from the imperial cult festivities, they were accepted by the Gentiles. Because typically, if you didn't participate, you were excluded. That was a requirement to be in business. And that was a requirement to be part of the guild is that you were involved in the imperial cult festivities. So the Jews received a special dispensation, a special exemption from the government. So they had managed over a long period of time to build solid relationships with all the business leaders. They were wealthy in their own right. They had their own successful businesses and they had worked it out. Then along comes these Christians who, uh, as far as the Roman government was concerned, Judaism, Christianity, it's all the same. You all have the same Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, Right? And so they, try, they fit under the coattails, if you will, of Judaism. They weren't a new religion. And the Jews didn't like that and realized, because they did not believe in the Messiah, the best way to hurt the Christians is to say they're not part of us. Therefore, they're not exempt. And because they're not exempt, they cannot do business. You with me? I know your afflictions and your poverty. There it is. They were the poorest. Was that a distraction, you think? Trying to survive? Or how about this? I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not. Being slandered. Is that a distraction? It would be, wouldn't it? You're a small church in a large city, and you're being accused, you're being slandered, you're poor. Those people are the synagogue of Satan. I don't think that means that's where Satan's home is. If you look at the other use of the word Satan, uh, it's a title, and it just means accuser. You are a synagogue. They are a synagogue of accusers. So what's going on around them? They're poor. They're being slandered. They're being accused left and right. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. They're suffering and they're about to experience more suffering. I tell you, the devil will put some of you 
in prison to test you. Think about those distractions. We don't have many of those today. They might come in my lifetime, but they're not right here. They're not here right now. Okay? We have, a cell, we have an iPhone to distract us. They had the community to distract them from the truth. Make sense? And so what does Jesus say to them? I know all these things. The problem is you don't know it. That's why he wrote the letter to Smyrna. You need to know the truth. And as a pastor, I'm telling you, you need to know the truth. You need to put the distractions aside long enough to face the reality. Maybe you are sick and going to die. You know what? It's time to do business. Maybe your marriage is struggling. It's time to do business. I've said many times, don't be ashamed if your marriage is in trouble. Ours has been in trouble. Don't be afraid if your family is hurting and is struggling. Don't be afraid if your business is failing. Don't be ashamed of any of that. As a church, we specialize in grace and redemption. That's what the church is all about. So he's saying to them, I know all of this, but you don't know it. And I need to let you know that. See how this just cuts right through all those distractions? And here's what he says. You're going to suffer for 10 days. You're going to be thrown into prison. Be faithful. Do what's right. Be faithful. Be alert is what Paul says in Thessalonians. That's the opposite of distracted. Pay attention. Be alert. Be sober. All these, langu- these words are used in there to help us understand. Do not be deceived by this. Whatever it is that distracts you, don't be deceived by it. Don't keep your head stuck in the sand. Get it out. Get it out of the sand. When you're delivered, when you, when you have that destiny that's handed to you, some of you will. You have cancer. It's very severe and you don't have long to live. Happened to one of our guys. He was given two weeks and he lived two weeks. That's the time when I stepped in and said, how's your faith? Let's talk about your faith because that's what's real. He says, be faithful. And then he says, even to the point of death, and I will give you as your victor, I will give you life as your victor's crown. Okay, do you know what the symbol was for Smyrna? On the city gates and on the coins and everything? The symbol was the athlete's wreath. At the Olympiad, the victors won the wreath. Okay? It's a wreath of victory. So what he's saying, he's using language they would understand that I will give you true life as the victor's crown. Don't pay attention to what's happening here in the world. They're going to do everything they can to distract you. Yeah, the mountains are great. Skiing is great. Some of you might think drug, drugs are great. All that, whatever it is, whatever your area that you move into for distraction, don't be deceived. You need to know the truth. Then he goes on, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, um, they will not be hurt by the second death. You know what that is? Later on in Revelation, he's going to talk about the two deaths, the first death and the second death. The first death is physical death. And barring God's return, barring the return of Jesus, every one of you is going to go through it. It's going to happen. I hope it's not painful, but it's going to be for some of you, I bet. I bet it is. Are you ready to die? Because it is going to happen. I am continually amazed 
week after week, how our same church comes back together and people haven't died. Not too many. Not unexpectedly. I'm amazed my siblings are all alive. My children are alive. My grandchildren are alive. Because I know from Job what Satan would love to do if God gave him permission. You want to die? But that's not the promise. Get used to that. Get over it. You're going to die. Here's the promise. You will not be hurt at all by the second death. That's eternal separation. That's a message of, a message of Smyrna. Put the distractions aside and deal with real life. In whatever form it takes. Don't be ashamed of whatever sin you're involved in. Please. Please. Don't be ashamed. Come and let's bring it out into the light between us in a relationship. And there are ways to deal with it. There are ways to deal with it. I've been around the world many times. I've talked to many, many people. It's my 40th year as a Christian. I don't think, I honestly don't think I can ever be offended again at what I've heard. I could tell you stories that just, sin is so incredible. Don't be ashamed. Get your head out of the sand. It's another way of saying, put the distraction aside and deal with reality. That's what the letter of Smyrna is about. I know what you're going through, but you don't know it. And you need to know the truth. Because that's the road, that's the road to life. That's the road that the world doesn't know how to get there. They don't know. Their only option is to live with it or look at us and see the kingdom and see grace. That's their only option. Father, thank you for, uh, thanks for sending us your son. Thank you, Lord, for knowing the truth about us and loving us anyway. Thank you for being patient, demonstrating patience upon patience upon patience with us. Thanks for being gracious. Thank you most of all for not being ashamed of us, but for loving us deeply. Help us to be that kind of church in each other's lives. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Let me say a word before I invite the ushers up here. Um, when you look at the budget... Look at it, if download it if you haven't done it, and take a look at it. We are asking for an increase. And uh, yes, I already know that a bunch of you are going to ask me this question, so I'm just letting you know. It does include a cost of living raise for the staff, and it includes another raise on top of that. I asked the elders to last, uh, at the last elder meeting to uh, pray about uh, giving uh, a raise to our staff because we get a cost of living raise every year, and this is a performance raise. And they agreed to it unanimously. And, um, and I just want to say thank you. You're the ones that make it possible for us to live life and to be paid what we paid and to enjoy the benefits we enjoy. It wouldn't happen without you. And on behalf of the staff, I just want to say thank you for that. We are deeply grateful.